Hello and welcome to the Spiked Podcast. I'm Fraser Myers and with me this week we have Spiked columnist Ella Whelan. Hi. And no Tom Slater this week, so we're delighted to welcome writer and broadcaster Emma Webb. Thank you for having me. Coming up on the show, the end of the free internet, the war in Ukraine and JK Rowling takes on the Labour Party. So this week, the UK government unveiled its long-awaited online safety bill. It's a huge piece of legislation covering all kinds of internet activity. The government has tried to pretend that somehow this preserves freedom of speech on the internet, but it's quite clear that things are different. It um, imposes a duty of care on social media companies to delete harmful but legal content. It creates new offences around uh, certain forms of speech. I mean, Emma, what have you made of this? I think that, you know, kudos, yes, they have tried to, you know, work into this some free speech protections. And I don't think that this is intentional gaslighting or smoke and mirrors by saying that this bill protects free speech. It clearly does not. Um, Mm. I think that it poses a serious threat to free speech because what it essentially does is imposes on social media companies a duty to remove content that is regarded as being legal but harmful. Now, they don't actually use the phrase legal but harmful in the current draft of the legislation. It was a phrase that was used uh, in the earlier white paper. Um, But they do have this concept of um, in in the draft draft bills that were working up to the current piece of legislation that is being proposed, they did include in that this idea of of content that it has a psychologically adverse effect on adults. Mm. So parts of this bill are laudable. They're to do with protecting children. um, They're to do with all sorts of things that, you know, are, are illegal and shouldn't be online, but they're also focusing on things that are legal. So in the current form of the legislation, it doesn't, as I say, it doesn't mention those terms exactly. But what it does is it gives the minister the power by statutory instrument to define what is harmful for adults online. Yeah. And so um, what was really interesting and I, I found um, deeply disturbing was in the DCMS uh, press release about That's this. It's for culture, media and sport. Yeah, in, in their press release about this legislation, in one paragraph, they say that um, this legislation will um, will bolster free speech because it will prevent it won't allow social media companies to take down content that is legal. But then two paragraphs later, it says that it will um, it will require of them to remove material that is legal but harmful. Yeah. So it uses that phrase again, legal but harmful. And what this is essentially is offensive speech. This will be things like saying that trans women aren't women. Mm. And so actually, in reality. This is giving a financial incentive to social media companies to remove that because the fines will be huge if they don't. But it's it's nods to free speech don't have that same robust financial incentive. So they just require them to have regard for free speech. But it's definitely weighted in favour of censorship. Yeah, there seems to be two elements of of gaslighting going on here. One is that um, it's protecting free speech. The grounds for this, as you say, being that the harms that should be taken down should be defined by the government rather than the social media companies. I mean, you can see a kind of democratic argument around that. But the other thing is that it's presented as going after the tech companies, going after these um, big, bad, you know, um, 
reigning in the wild west of, of, of the tech universe, going after Mark Zuckerberg, all these people we, we kind of hate. But really, I mean, it's us, isn't it? We're the ones that are producing this supposedly hateful content. It's the user that's going to get harmed by this. Yeah, I don't think that I'd be so generous to the government in um, outlining their motives in relation to this. I think what politicians have done have swallowed the argument that the way to enable free speech is to of some people is to clamp down on the free speech of others so mm. by stopping all the nasty stuff you allow all the good stuff to um jump up the algorithm or whatever the argument is and we know that that is a nonsense argument because yeah. the whole point of that is that it entails someone or an organization or a body or a company um like these tech giants to be the people who make the decision between what's good and what's nasty um and so it's uh, much i think also much like uh moves to introduce free speech protections as they call it in relation to higher education or things like that anytime the government tries to wade into this and institute put a kind of label on what it defines as free speech and mm. how it will be protected it's inevitably going to um enable censorship because what the government understands as reasonable speech or legal speech, I would completely disagree with. I mean, Nadine Doris, I wouldn't trust her as far as I could throw her <laughs> with my, with any sense of free speech. She's, uh, the stuff that she's come out with in her time as culture secretary is mad, to be honest. She doesn't have a clue of what freedom of speech means. She's using her platform to try and, you know, exactly your right, Fraser, this kind of rhetoric of like, we're going to catch you, you bad guys. And yeah. sort of very cheap, superficial, anti-Zuckerberg kind of attempt to kind of populist rhetoric there. When in actual fact, the stuff that she's proposing is really quite frightening. And just on the kids thing, I mean, there are laws in place already in relation to, um, you know, sexual images of kids or child pornography and all that stuff that no one wants to make any defense of. But some of the ways in which protection of kids in relation to spill being discussed have real implications. So, for example, people discussing things that, you know, people say are are difficult for children to handle, whether it be abortion or horror films or things like self-harm or whatever, nasty stuff. And if you implement the restrictions that this um, bill is suggesting, age verification or proving your identity or all that kind of stuff, what you're saying is in order to protect children from some difficult or nasty things online, you're going to limit adults' ability to be anonymous or to mm -hmm. use parts of the internet that are very important for, for example, political activism. You know, it seems to me that the problem is uh, parents or teachers not educating kids or not slapping them on the wrist when they've been on their phones too long or checking their history rather than uh, a government needing to wade into the private lives of parents and their kids. So I can't find anything to celebrate in this bill. I think as, as Spike has long said, any attempt to legislate around free speech more often than not ends up in censorship rather than benefits. Yeah. I mean, the government says the UK is going to be the safest place in the world to go online. For me, that sounds like you're talking about China or North Korea or something like that. I mean, am I being alarmist there? No, there, that there thought? was a, a, an internet study centre, I can't remember what its name was, that um, put out with a report that I think was eventually withdrawn, where they um, essentially said that the safest place in the world to be online was North Korea mm. uh, because they don't have internet. Um, and <laughs> You're I, not going to be confronted with any harmful or abusive messages. You know, I, it's what's an, it's what's an, like? It's an interesting... Uh, an interesting way that they're choosing to spin this, that it's this kind of patriotic thing that the internet was invented in Britain and we're introducing the first ever laws to make the online sort of um, frontier because it's 
portrayed as being this kind of wild west mm. where all of these ideas can be freely shared and that that's something that some needs to be restricted in some way. Um, but like you were saying that, you know, you wouldn't trust Nadine Doris as far as you can throw her. She's made comments in the past about censoring comedians, for example. Yeah. And, you know, she may be the minister now, but we don't know who's going to be in that position at some point in the future. And is that really the sort of power that we want to be giving to someone in that position to be able to define what they believe is harmful for adults to see? And given the sort of climate that we live in and the sorts of um, things that people find offensive, that people would say would be psychologically adverse Mm. for an adult to experience, it's again, it's part of this overall infantilization of the adult population that we've seen in many ways for many years, yeah, over the last couple of years, especially. Um, and I think that that is extremely dangerous. The idea that the online world for children, yes, to a degree, but the idea that the online world needs to be made psychologically safe for adults, I think is a, is a strange and very worrying idea. Yeah. And that's, that's always the one of the key problems with censorship, isn't it? I mean, it's who decides and, you know, often what the government decides is just what the establishment view is. So, you know, people have kicked up a bit of a fuss around the potential for gender critical views being Mm. censored and there might be a possible carve out in the law, but we don't know what the next big flashpoint issue is going to be in this way. No, we know that talking about any kind of thorny political issue, whether it be related to race or gender or the discussion around the pandemic with um, people opposing mandated vaccines being censored. And we saw that whole thing happen with talk radio on YouTube Mm. and being banned. And there's many, many, many examples of it already happening. So it's not like this bill is suddenly, whoa, censorship is around the corner. We know it's been happening for a long time, but to have it legislated in this way is, I think, you know, is a real significant step. It's also worth noting that, you know, the government in its classic form as it has been for the last um, two or three years, certainly throughout the pandemic, is bringing in this legislation with barely any time for parliamentary scrutiny. Not that I think many people in parliament are going to oppose it in any way that I would like. Labour says it doesn't go far enough because it's not tackling Russian disinformation. But there has been, there has been, you know, the the irony of this is that it's discussed as a public good, a bit like Mm. public Mm -hmm. health, a bit like banning smoking or something like that. You've got to make the public square of the online world healthy for people. And yet there has been no public consultation Mm. on this in any kind of decent way. In fact, you more often than not see, see you know, despite the fact that Emma's right, there's been some pretty dystopian stuff happening recently in relation to um, moves for towards infantilizing people. But there's been a significant amount of pushback on that. You know, we know that, for example, in the context of the war in Ukraine, free speech is suddenly back on the agenda and people are being very supportive of, for example, Russian dissidents who are expressing their free speech. Yeah. And indeed, throughout the pandemic, the the need to be able to talk to stuff became about stuff became very real for people because once you had no actual public square that you could go out into, you remember the power of the internet, the exciting thing about it, which is that it did become people's, that it did become the public square for people. So the government is acting, I think, in bad faith and it's also showing that it's completely out of touch with the general sentiment of mm. wanting to have at least a discussion about free speech and perhaps its limits, or as we would argue, its limitlessness in order to for a democratic society. Emma, it's not exactly the case that the web is a wild west. I mean, people are being arrested all the time for saying things online, right? 
particularly with uh, NCHIs, the non-crime hate incidents that people like Harry Miller had been um, caught, you know, called up by the police for things they'd tweeted or retweeted. Um, people get in trouble for things they do online all the time. They have content removed and things like that. Um, but I also think that it's it's a very strange and backward understanding, or, or, or I should say, um, not an obvious understanding of what safety means mm. when it comes to the adult population. Because is it really safer online for people to be limited in the sorts of ideas they can access, the sorts of opinions and having access to a diversity of viewpoints? Because in my view, and I think this is a very philosophically grounded position free speech is a cornerstone of a resilient society. This is a point that J.S. Mill made that, you know, one of the ways in which society becomes strong Mm. is by the ability to weigh up certain ideas, discuss ideas, and with your own ideas, to throw out those ideas that when tested turn out to be trash. And if we can't have those sorts of discussions in person, yes, but if, as we see with the online safety bill, they're essentially saying that things that you would be you know, able to say in real life that will be legal for you to say, you won't be able to say online because Mm. they'll be regarded as being legal, but harmful. Um, And if we're doing that, and as you say, you know, the public space, uh, the public square has become something that is very much in the online world. If we're going to reduce the viewpoint diversity on that platform, does that really make society safer? Is that really a safer place for the adult population if they're only able to access the views that someone somewhere says they're allowed to access. Free speech isn't the only thing that needs defending online. Privacy is also a major issue. For instance, did you know that your internet service provider can see every single website you visit and they can sell that data to big tech? But there is a solution. It's called ExpressVPN and I can't recommend it enough. ExpressVPN keeps your private data safe It creates a secure encrypted tunnel between your device and the internet so your online activity can't be seen by anyone. It'd take a hacker with a supercomputer more than a billion years to get past ExpressVPN's encryption. That might sound complicated, but it's actually very easy to use. You just fire up the app and click one button to get protected. Plus, it works on all devices, phones, laptops, tablets, TVs, and more, so you can stay secure wherever you are. What could be easier? And that's not all. With ExpressVPN, I can also access tons of incredible content like TV shows and films from other countries that would otherwise be blocked. For instance, I can access the content on any country's version of Netflix, and that means I can watch thousands of films and TV shows that aren't normally available. So secure your online data today by visiting expressvpn.com slash spiked. That's expressvpn.com slash spiked and you can get an extra three months for free. Expressvpn.com slash spiked. So we're into the third week of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. In the past few days, Russia has been shelling Kiev and the city of Mariupol is reportedly 90% destroyed, according to the UN. But at the same time, peace talks are ongoing and there are some chinks of light. Um, Both sides have said they're making progress towards a compromise. And in particular, um, Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky has said that Ukraine is not going to join NATO. Now, we know this is a 
this has been a very sore point for Russia in particular. Ella, do you want to talk a little bit about this? Yeah, so it's one of those situations which I think everyone knew was um, definitely a possibility. It's important to say that by no means is Russia dragging Ukraine, kicking and screaming to um, the peace talk table. It's mm. been significant that um, Russian uh, military victories have not been as many as they wanted and as yeah. many as maybe some people expected and that Ukrainian fighters um, from people who uh, you know picked up a Kalashnikov and got three days training to um, proper military forces have withheld um, Russian attacks to a valiant degree and should be commended and um, solidarity to everyone fighting for sovereignty in Ukraine. Uh, but you know, they're a bit like what Brendan O'Neill wrote in his column this week. Watching this from the West, um, it's quite easy for people to be sort of armchair diplomats or <laughs> armchair military experts. And the point he makes is that, you know, we have to respect and support whatever um, Ukraine comes, to, whatever decision Ukraine comes to. And so, you know, no matter what you think of NATO, no matter what you think of the tricky issue of sovereignty and uh, a nation's ability to make sovereign decisions about the fact that, you know, previously Ukraine was very hot on the idea of joining NATO as mm. you know, commitment within their constitution. Yeah. Um, and you could make the argument that it feels a little bit like uh, it, it would be a, an imposition from Russia for them to make this decision because uh, they've changed their minds. But if that is what's going to happen, then that's what's going to happen. And I think it raises some very... Um, difficult questions for the kind of people who in particularly in the west and west western commentators who in the last um 2 weeks have really demonized any kind of serious discussion about nato or nato's history mm. um and i think understanding that and what not apologizing for what russia's done or um using it as an excuse to say well what did you you know there are people who are kind of legitimizing the idea that russia you know had a point in defending its security interests i don't think that stands at all but looking at the consequences of NATO expansion, looking at the, I think the position that countries like Ukraine get put in, mm. um, in this much bigger um, context of Western powers versus um, Russia, there, there, there is some soul searching to do. And the war is not over yet. And I don't think it's going to be over in the next few days. Um, but all we can do at the moment is show solidarity with those people fighting in Ukraine and indeed those people coming over from Ukraine. Emma, your thoughts? From a Western perspective, it is just simply not in our interests for Putin to invade Ukraine, for there to be any concessions in Putin to Putin's aggression, or for, for Putin to be pushed further into the arms of China mm. and for there to be a closer alliance between Russia and China, which is something that we've seen over the past couple of weeks really starting to blossom. So from a Western strategic perspective, all of this is very concerning. And I, I, that is one of the things that I thought was most interesting about all of the discussion around this is that the, the positions that people were taking, I found to were, and maybe this is naivety on my part, but I found that those, those positions were not what I would have expected. Do you think that people are taking a kind of, um, overly emotional position, which might be understandable? So obviously, you know, we've talked a lot on this podcast about how we obviously want to send our, extend our solidarity to mm. Ukraine. Um, you know, the bravery of the Ukrainians has, has impressed everyone, but then perhaps that extends into the view for a no fly zone in some people's mm. eyes, where really, if you were, if you had a, had your hard head on, 
that's probably not a good idea because it's going to entangle us in a war with Russia. That's not in the West's interests either. And there seems to be almost very little debate about, you know, which move is taken next and, and what the long ter- longer term implications are. You, you might say it's emotional, but I think it's it certainly is the importance of what's happening to Ukrainians at the moment is not just that they're being bombed and killed or that Russia is doing things like bombing maternity hospitals and then lying about the fact that there's pregnant women in it and just really kind of dystopian stuff happening. It's not just that that kind of basic human level. It's the fact that for people like us who have um, beaten the drum for sovereignty mm. and um, de- you know self-determination of nations in context of Brexit and other sort of European movements that or you know US elections or whatever for the last few years, this is the most you know the invasion of a sovereign nation. Absolutely. Whatever about Ukrainian democracy or lack of democracy. And I think too many people, myself included, have been lazy with sort of the way in which we've talked about what Ukraine Mm. was before all this kicked off. Nevertheless, that imposition of Russia is, is, I don't think it's emotional to want to reject that or for the people who are going over from the UK or other places to fight in a sort of quasi-international brigade. It's because that sense of, um, you know, it's why people fought for national liberation struggles in the past from Ireland to anywhere else is because you relate to that sense of it being important for citizens to have, to defend that right to self-determination. However, that's one thing, but as you say, Fraser, any action has a consequence. And I think the thing that I've been thinking about um, when trying to digest people who are in support of the, the, the arguments from people in support of a no-fly zone or you know, people who rightly call the bluff of an armchair expert like me that says, oh, solidarity with Ukraine. And indeed, Ukrainian MPs are coming out and saying, well, for Christ's sake, like I, I can't fight a war on your solidarity. And But the question is, if we, if the uh, West um, becomes more militarily involved, if there is a war with Russia or some kind of an escalation, it doesn't just mean things that people have talked about, threat of nuclear war or more death and destruction in the region, pumping arms into that part of the world. It's not just that. It's also about the political consequences in the next 10 and 20 years of um, solidifying support for NATO, of um, reifying international institutions of giving power and authority to a British government who, uh, you know, wouldn't know democracy if it kicked them in the backside. <laughs> I mean, and that's not a small point. Yeah, that's yeah. not a, and, uh, and, you know, you can argue that I'm just sort of do, engaging in whataboutery, but I think it's important that politicians in America and in the UK and across Europe who have denigrated the idea of sovereignty and do not believe it um, in it in the last six years should now come out and we should now trust them with fighting that fight. I find I'm not able to make that leap yet. Um, and maybe things will change, but I think that it, it, people who are opposing no fly zones or further military action like myself are not just being pacifist, are not just being flippant. It's actually about a, a serious look at what are the long-term consequences of this. Let's talk a bit about what's going on internally uh, within Russia, because there's obviously you know, there's a tendency when we have big geopolitical conflicts to talk about Russia as a monolith, Putin being the embodiment of Russia, when actually we've seen a lot of dissent against this war, a lot of brave people standing up saying that this is not in their name. Perhaps the clearest example of this came from Marina Ovsvanikova, who um, took to essentially interrupted a live broadcast of the Channel One uh, news programme, the most watched uh, news programme in Russia, to hold up a sign saying no war, demanding an end to um, the war in Ukraine. And of course, she was detained for 14 hours. She went to court. Uh, 
for now, it seems like she's got off with a fine, but who who knows in, in these circumstances? I mean, Emma, what have you made of these kinds of um, acts of defiance? Because she's not alone, even if that's... The it's incredibly example. brave. And we saw so on one of the um, mainstream news channels, I believe it is in, in, in Russia, mm. um, that they had a discussion that was fairly critical of Putin's... Um, I was going to say Putin's policies, which we'll just say Putin's invasion of Ukraine. Yeah. Um, I think it's incredibly brave of them in what really is a, a very stifling context to be brave enough, knowing the risks. They must have known the risks of doing that. Um, you know, I don't think it's possible to really know the extent of dissent within Russia because we have no way of accessing that or mm. measuring it. It's not possible to take a poll of the Russian people. It may be that there is more resistance against it in um, more urban circles, perhaps. I don't know. That's just a, that's just a sort of blind guesswork that, you know, Russia is not the Russia of the past. These are people who have had access to, we were talking about the internet earlier, yeah. access to um, the global world of ideas. You know, they're, they're, they they know what's going on in the world um, and they've been able to make their own, you know, form their own views of these things. And I think um, perhaps perhaps Putin didn't contend with the possibility that um, his own population would be, um, I'm sure he would regard it as unpatriotic and I'm sure that they would probably disagree with that. Um, but it's, I don't think this is necessarily, I know some people have been very optimistic and said that perhaps this will mean that Putin will be overthrown and there will be mm. a new regime in Russia. Um, I'm not that optimistic, but I, I do think that these people are incredibly brave and um, it's, it's very laudable that they have, have, have done this. Um, yeah. But Putin will probably just continue to crack down on people who dissent. Yeah. In the past few weeks, obviously there's a law um, that can potentially put people in jail for 15 years mm -hmm. uh, for spreading what they call fake information mm -hmm. about the war, which is what we would regard as the truth about <laughs> the war. You can't even call it a war. That's considered, you know, um, verboten, or you can't call it an invasion. Around 15,000 demonstrators have been arrested. Many more will have demonstrated and not been arrested. We've seen people holding up blank sheets of paper and getting arrested. We've seen people holding up sheets of paper that just say literally two words, getting arrested. Mm. This is really quite something, isn't it? It's also a sign of a um, state that is in panic it's mm. because you, and this point has been made before by many people, that you don't go around arresting citizens who are quite literally saying nothing yeah. um, as that clip of that woman was quite remarkable clip, clip of the woman holding up the sign two words shows it's that there is a, a, the Kremlin knows that it is um, facing a domestic battle among dissidents I mean, I've seen lots of people being very down on the prospect of um, the level of dissent in Russia. And it's not understandable, but it's to be expected that the kind of Russia phobia that goes on in the West has leaked into people thinking that everyone is in support of Putin or that, you know, even worse, that kind of Russians are see these kind of like myopic can't yeah. um, think about any, you know, they just watch the news and suck it up and, and that's the way they think. But if you look, you know, I'm reading Quiet Flows the Dawn at the moment by Sholokov, which is, um, I made a joke to someone the other day, it's a bit like buying chicken Kievs or something, you're hiding it on the tube you're reading a Russian you know, that everyone sort of you think people are looking at you but when you read that book and you realize how far back relationships between Russians and Ukrainians go mm. um, about the kind of history of international solidarity in that country and 
as much as Russia, as much as Putin is making the argument that we are the same people and therefore Ukrainian um, sovereignty is a nonsense yeah. and that's wrong, it's also true that there are the relationship between Russians and Ukrainians goes very very deep and there it, it is not impossible to think that there are lots of people who, whatever they think about the Donbass region or Russia's right to um, claim that cup that that place culturally they will not be okay with um, their brothers and their cousins and their relations mm -hmm. being bombed. And so I think what we as citizens of the West can do is fight for free speech, as we've been talking about in relation to the online harm bills and show just how important it is, but also show solidarity, not just with Ukrainians, but with those Russians who are putting their necks and their jobs and their um, freedom on the line. And Emma, in the West, in, in Britain and America, there's been this kind of tendency to cancel Russians to say they should, you know, they need to explicitly say their loyalty to the West and denounce Putin. Otherwise, mm -hmm. they can't play at Wimbledon. Otherwise, they shouldn't be allowed to play classical music. What have you made of that as well? Because that's I think it's great. on a more basic level of analysis. I just think it's pure philistinism. Mm -hmm. I think that the idea that the Cardiff Philharmonic should cancel a performance of Tchaikovsky or that we shouldn't be teaching Dostoevsky mm -hmm. or that somehow we should be less familiar with Russian culture and Russian history, surely the opposite of that would be true anyway. Um, but I also think on another level, and this is a point that Helen Dale has made, I think it's a really interesting one, is that we're seeing the tools of cancel culture being employed against an entire country. Mm. And on the one level, sanctions, yes, it makes sense for states to sanction countries like Russia when they you know, invade other countries or act against our interests. Um, but on another level, to allow that to, to bleed into the way that we treat um, that we treat the culture of that country as a kind of cultural boycott in the same way that we saw during the apartheid against South Africa. Mm -hmm. um, for me, that seems to be, you know, completely Philistine way of, of thinking. Um, and I actually think that, you know, going back to what we were discussing before about the importance of being exposed to different ideas, surely understanding Russian culture and understanding um, Russian literature and history is something that, will be very important going forward, given Russia's importance on the world stage, mm. whether that is shrinking or growing, who knows? Um, I'd like to say the same, you know, also for China, I would be very against a cultural boycott of anything Chinese, not that anybody really is familiar with Chinese literature or anything, but surely being more familiar with these countries would be a benefit to us. And finally, let's talk about uh, Harry Potter author, JK Rowling, who has slammed Keir Starmer and the Labour Party for failing to stand up for women's rights. Uh, Keir Starmer essentially said that trans women are women and two Labour front benches last week also struggled to even define the word woman. Ella, what have you made of this? Well, it's actually funny that Keir Starmer is willing to, perhaps it says something about him being a man and the other two MPs that struggled being women, is that he ha has no qualms in saying um, trans women are women, which isn't, let's get this straight, isn't some kind of support, you know, expression of support for trans rights at this point. Mm. It isn't some kind of nuanced discussion about identity. It's about saying, shut the F up, you gender critical mm. feminists. Yeah. You're wrong. You're bigoted, as he said, in relation to the cervix thing. It's wrong. It's evil to kind yeah, of talk it's about. It's wrong to say only women have a cervix. Yeah. So, so 
Gears Tom is very clear on what position he's taking in that um, what's now become quite a toxic, but you know, gender war. Annalise Dodds, when she was um, being interviewed on Women's Hour on International Women's Day, was um, <laughs> was unable to give Emma Barnett a clear definition of um, what a woman was. She's used legal kind of blustering yeah. um, to avoid it. And Yvette Cooper just laughed when she was asked on Times Radio and said, "Ha ha, I don't want to get into that rabbit hole," you know. Um, I don't, I don't often like um, Suzanne Moore's columns, but she did write a good column saying, well, am I a rabbit hole now? I mean, that's what women <laughs> have become. Now, look, you know, I've said many times before, I, I'm not someone who's going to wear one of those adult human female t-shirts yeah. because I don't think a woman is simply her biology. Um, I think philosophically and politically, it's a, it's a very interesting conversation. Different women are different. I, I'm not a woman, I'm Ella Whelan, you know, and, mm. and I think that's very important to reject the kind of uh, biological determinism of gender critical feminists. However, 99.999% of the country, when they're asked what is the difference between a man and a woman, will say, will define it in terms of biology yeah. because that's the easiest way in which we differentiate between the sexes, biological sex is real and all the rest of it. So this is the Labour Party, you know, we've talked about politicians acting in bad faith and gaslighting us. Mm. This is the Labour Party essentially playing games with the idea of truth because it knows very well what most of its constituents think about biological sex. This is just it's signalling to a small group of um activists who are very intolerant on the trans ideology side of saying we're you know still vote for us because we're yeah. still fighting your fight and for you know it's going to turn most women off it's not not evil even able to um convince its own mps to be able to say that on on radio which is significant enough they're too cowardly to do so and um you know may it be their downfall yeah emma that's the question kind of question i was going to put to you i mean they know what a woman is don't they i mean they're just not being honest with us. I think the fact that, um, that uh, as you say, Annalisa Dodds and Yvette Cooper and Annalisa Dodds, the shadow minister for equalities, no mm. less, um, that, you know, they, the fact that they were clearly running scared from even saying the word woman has become this kind of grotesquely terrifying thing. It sh goes to show, as you say, the firstly, the influence that this minority of, of extremely loud and powerful activists have had um, in changing the tide of discussion so that really when any politician is faced with that question and it has become a gotcha question, yeah. they, they are running away scared from it. And I think that you're absolutely right that this is going to be, I think it will be the downfall of the Labour Party when it comes to particularly their female constituents because J.K. Rowling is absolutely right. There is a, a large and growing number of women who are becoming aware of what the implications of this are for their rights, for same-sex spaces and the importance of that. Um, and I think that there will be growing pressure. There has been a, a serious pushback. And actually, when you look at cancer, cancel culture and you look at, um, for example, um, the treatment of specific academics like um, Kathleen Stock and others, mm. people who, uh, who are getting no platformed, who are really suffering what I would say is, is, is bordering on a kind of persecution, that those are women who hold, we call them gender critical views, but what we really mean is they, they hold to biological fact something that has been agreed up until this point that simply they believe in biological sex, yeah. which is something that is in scientific terms, a fact. Um, and so 
we refer to gender gender critical beliefs as if they are some kind of belief, but really it's it's so much more than that. Um, and I think that the as you say, you know, the majority of Labour's female constituents, but also the majority of people around the country, probably hold what we would say were gender critical views. And so any party that shows itself incapable of simply saying the word woman or mm. using it in the way that that women commonly that, that we commonly use the word woman, that um, they're going to seem increasingly absurd and detached from the majority of people around the country. And Ella, I mean, it is always the word woman that causes this mm-hmm. um, people to get into a flap. It's always the word woman that is replaced with um, menstruators and chest feeders and all these kinds of strange and alien gender neutral terms. And it seems to be women who get it in the neck for speaking out about this. I mean, JK Rowling, probably the most reasonable, liberal, calm, polite people on planet Earth is held up to be this vicious, transphobic witch. She was a lovely until quite recently. Exactly. She was insufferable until I had to start defending her. Ah, She's quite boring. (laughs) But um, you're right. And exacerbated by the fact that we know that in terms of the numbers of what's going on, particularly with young people in relation to those who want to transition, Mm. it's way, the proportion of girls who want to transition to become boys far outweighs the other, um, the the flip side. And yet the discussion mainly centers around uh, men who want to transition to become women or this whole mantra of trans women are women. Mm. You you, just, you never really hear people say trans men are men or if they, they kind of remember that they have to do it as like a tick and they say it afterwards. But yeah, I think that tells you something because There are lots of things about biological fact that sociologically or politically we subvert. So, you know, the best time for a woman to have a baby is when she's not a woman, when she's a girl at 15 and 16 biologically. But socially and politically, we've decided that that's not um, the best way to raise young people. And so then we have normalized having it, having babies at 30 plus. And, um, and that's a way of us subverting biological fact. I mean, I don't think any of us have a problem with people identifying as different genders because we know that, you know, variety is the spice of life and our commitment to freedom expands to anyone wanting to call themselves and dress however they want and blah, 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 all the rest of it. But that's not what's going on here. What's going on is, um, you know, not a debate about what society thinks about gender, but an instruction from, as Emma says, a small minority who have large backing in terms of Stonewall and lobby groups of suggesting that either any discussion about this in society is bigoted and wrong, but also that particularly women who have, you know, let's not forget people like Annalise Dodds and Yvette Cooper a minute ago were talking about women-only shortlists and the importance of differences between the sexes are now saying, oh, you remember that changing room that you thought was really important we talked about in relation to sexual harassment? Sorry, just, you know, it's not going to be single sex anymore. And if you say anything about it, you'll either be locked up or, you know, you know, positioned as a witch. And so that's, that is, I don't go as far as saying it's misogynistic because I think that's a very heavy word to use, but I think women are having to bear the brunt of a lot of this. And I think that tells you something about the narrow understanding of um, both gender and biological sex and this whole mess that's going on between, but from the trans um, activist side, because this isn't just about being who you want to be. No one's stopping you from doing it. This is about trying to, um, 
delegitimize a particular point of view that, as Emma says, has been in place for a very long time. Lots of views have been in place for a very long time I would want to get rid of, but this one seems a little bit mad. <laughs> Thank you for listening to The Spike Podcast. We're back every Friday and you can now watch us on video too. Check us out on YouTube or go via the Spiked website, which is spiked-online.com. See you next time.